Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. Back in the second episode released, I told you about the disappearance of Jennifer Hillier Penny as one of the four people who vanished without a trace from St. Anthony, Newfoundland. When I first made that episode, there was limited information on Jennifer's case. This was predominantly due to the fact that the Newfoundland Supreme Court had put out a publication ban on information related to this case. Recently, New information has been coming out about this case, and now it's at the point where I feel like I need to retell you the case of Jennifer Hillier Penny. When the public receives little information, the media tends to attempt to fill holes where information is lacking, and that can really muddy the water when it comes to talking about a case. So today, you're going to hear about the accurate events that have left the whole town of St. Anthony wondering, where is Jennifer Hillier Penny? Get ready, because things about to get shady. Jennifer Hillier grew up in the town of St. Lunaire Gricket along Newfoundland's northern peninsula. Jennifer grew up in a home with six other siblings. Her family was described as close-knit and loving, but Jennifer was particularly close with her sister Yvonne, her brother Glenn, and her other brother Gary. It was in high school when Jennifer met Dean Penny. The two started off as friends, but that friendship quickly blossomed into a relationship and then a marriage. The two high school sweethearts moved 20 kilometers away to St. Anthony, Newfoundland, where they had two girls. Their first daughter's name was Marina, and their second was Dina. While living in St. Anthony, Jennifer became well known as a giving and kind woman who would do anything for a friend. She was loved by almost everyone who came across her. While living in St. Anthony, Jennifer worked at the St. Anthony Hospital. In 2016, Jennifer's life was going through some drastic changes. Recently, her daughter Marina had moved out to Clarenville, Newfoundland, which is about an 8-hour drive from St. Anthony, or 780 kilometers. In September of 2016, Jennifer's mother passed away. It was at this time that Jennifer talked to her husband Dean and explained that she no longer loved him and that if she wanted to be happy, she had to leave. Dean was very upset by this and really didn't want Jennifer to leave, but she had made up her mind. Jennifer got a lawyer and began discussing terms of separation and drawing up divorce papers. At this time, Jennifer remained in the same home as her husband to stay with her youngest daughter, Dina, who was 15 at this time. While there, Dean went through Jennifer's phone and saw that she had been texting with a man. This man was the lawyer she had hired for the divorce, and Dean was aware of this, but this didn't stop Dean from believing that Jennifer was having an affair with the lawyer. Jennifer's friends backed her up and said that the contact between the two was strictly professional. Dean wasn't appeased by these statements and began staking out Jennifer's work every once in a while. It was at this point that Jennifer had had enough. She couldn't handle being around Dean and she had to leave. So in November of 2016, Jennifer moved to her father's home in Gricket. 
While staying there, Jennifer continued to work at the St. Anthony Hospital, where she spotted Dean watching her a few more times. This made her feel uncomfortable and unsafe, and she expressed these concerns to her friends. Her friends supported her through this time and set up a system to check up on Jennifer daily to ensure her safety. Despite the system, Jennifer felt extremely uncomfortable and knew something had to change. At this point, she found a job opportunity in Glovertown, Newfoundland, which is right next to Clarenville. That meant that she could once again be near Marina. Jennifer jumped on this and was offered a job interview in the area. She told her two daughters and Dean her plans, and she explained that it's what she needed to achieve happiness in life. This move meant that Jennifer would have to leave Dean and Dina behind. Dina was 15 and still attending high school, so Jennifer couldn't just take her out of school to move across the province. But Jennifer truly felt she had no choice but to take this opportunity. After she announced this, she began having more uncomfortable interactions with Dean, and she felt very concerned by his actions. On November 16th of 2016, Jennifer reportedly had another confrontation with Dean. It was at this point that she went to work and pulled a co-worker aside. She asked the co-worker to be a witness for her while she changed her life insurance terms. Right then and there, Jennifer changed her policy, removing Dean from her insurance policy altogether and naming Marina and Dina as the sole beneficiaries of her policy. Jennifer didn't tell anyone about this at the time, and the only person who knew was her co-worker. About a week later, Dean asked Jennifer if she would watch Dina for him while he went duck hunting at their cabin in the northwest arm about 45 minutes away from St. Anthony. Jennifer wasn't comfortable with doing so, especially when you consider her past interactions with Dean. But he continued to attempt to convince her to do it, stating that he would not be setting foot in the home for the week and that he would be 45 minutes away the entire time. Eventually, Jennifer relented and agreed to watch Dina at Dean's home for the week. But Jennifer had to plan out every single day to make sure someone always knew where she was going to be. Jennifer would go to work every morning at 7 a.m. She would stay at work until 4 p.m. From the hospital, she would drive out to her dad's home in Gricket for dinner. Following dinner, Jennifer would go back to Dean's home. At this point, Dina would also be home, making sure that Jennifer was never actually alone in the house. This contingency plan ensured that there was no time in which Dean could possibly be in the home with Jennifer, especially not with someone else there. On November 30th, Jennifer woke up and went to work as usual. When she got off work, she headed to her dad's house for dinner. But today, her sister Yvonne was also there for dinner. While she was there, she told Yvonne how concerned she was about Dean's behavior, and explained everything. That evening, Yvonne had a previously scheduled appointment at the St. Anthony Hospital, so Jennifer drove Yvonne to her appointment on her way to Dean's home. Dina was out with friends that day, but Jennifer set her curfew for 9.30 so that she still wouldn't have to be alone at Dean's home. Jennifer just planned on waiting to take Yvonne home from her appointment, which would align with a 9.30 curfew. But while taking Yvonne to the hospital, Jennifer ended up getting a huge headache. This headache drastically impacted her, and she told Yvonne that she needed to go to Dean's home to lay down. During the ride, Jennifer received a phone call from Dean, as well as a text asking her when she would be arriving at his home. After dropping off Yvonne, Jennifer texted Dina saying that she was going to lay down, and that Dina had to call her by 9.30 to pick her up. Jennifer arrived at Dean's home at 8 o'clock, and she drew herself a bath and told Dina she was going to lay down now. At 9.30pm, 
Dina called her mom to come get her, but there was no answer. Dina figured that her mom had gone into a deep sleep, so Dina decided that she would stay out a bit longer. Then, when Dina was ready to head home, she called her paternal grandmother Ruby and asked her to come take her home. When Dina arrived home, she was surprised to see her father there. When Dina asked why he was home, he told her that he had forgotten his duck decoys in the garage and he needed them to go hunting. After this conversation, Dina and Dean said goodnight to one another, and Dina headed upstairs, being sure to go quietly past her mom's room so that Jennifer wouldn't wake up and get her in trouble for being out past curfew. Dina then laid down and went to sleep. In the morning, Dina heard the distinct sound of her mother's cell phone alarm, which had roused her from her sleep. This alarm continued to go off, and eventually Dina decided that she would just shut it off herself and see why her mom wasn't getting up. But when she opened her mom's bedroom door, she was baffled by what she saw. When Dina opened her mom's door, she saw her mom's cell phone, her coat, and her purse, but no Jennifer. Dina then went downstairs and saw that her mom's car was still sitting in the driveway, but despite searching everywhere in the home, she couldn't find her mom anywhere. Concerned and unsure of what was going on, Dina called Ruby and Dean, and they both rushed over to the home quickly. After they had arrived, Jennifer's brother Glenn, who lived next door to Dean, dropped by for a visit. It was then that he discovered that his sister was missing. It was at this point that authorities were contacted and a small RCMP dispatch arrived on scene. The officers found that Jennifer's car keys were sitting in her car's ignition and the doors were unlocked. It was at this point that the RCMP on the scene declared that she had likely vanished intentionally and told no one. They said that there was no reason to suspect foul play and that she would turn up soon. Despite this, Jennifer's friends and family insisted that she would never leave without telling anyone, and they quickly took to creating missing persons posters and they put them up across town. They managed to convince officers to carry out some search efforts. But during these searches, something changed. The search went from a few RCMP officers and a small group of people to a large-scale search covering the sea and any other areas she may have been, with searches from another town called Roddickton coming over to work the case. Apparently, they are known for their search teams, and they were familiar with the area, and it was a big deal according to some reports. The thing that caused this shift was unclear, but RCMP still believed that she intended to leave at this point. On the second and third day of searching, canine unit sniffer dogs were brought in and brought around the entire town. Throughout all of those runs with the canine unit, the only traces of Jennifer were found around Dean's home. At that same time, RCMP put out a statement that people should look out for any changes to their property or differences in their surroundings that they may have noticed. Searches continued, then on the 7th of December, the RCMP finally gave in and declared that Jennifer likely didn't disappear on her own accord, and that this occurred under suspicious circumstances. Once the RCMP declared that the disappearance was suspicious, they said that Dean's house was to be treated as a potential crime scene, and a whole seven days after Jennifer was last seen, with over a hundred people having moved in and out of the home, it was sealed off to the public to be analyzed. At this point, RCMP brought in a forensics team. Their search found that there was no incriminating evidence at the scene and that there was no sign of a struggle. To me, this statement would mean a lot more if they had closed off the scene right away. 
and when a scene had six days to be cleaned of evidence, and to me, the scene had been tainted by having over a hundred people traipsing through that house. Not long after Jennifer disappeared, Dean's mother offered up a reward of $25,000 for information in the disappearance of Jennifer. While this could be entirely out of the goodness of her heart, there were quite a few people who were skeptical of her true intentions. Many people said that this was an attempt to divert attention away from her son. Throughout all of this, Dean did not participate in a single search and appeared somewhat indifferent to Jennifer being gone. This made Dean look very bad, and many people believe his mother wanted to shift attention away from him. When Ruby heard these rumors, she went public with a few statements. She said that she offered the reward because she truly cared about what happened to Jennifer. She also said that she hoped Jennifer had just run away because she couldn't handle it if Jennifer died. Ruby also openly stated that Dean had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance, and that people were looking in the wrong direction. Lastly, she informed people that if she did in fact find out that Dean had killed Jennifer, she wouldn't cover it up with a reward. She would have taken him to police herself. Ruby had a lot to say in her son's defense, just as many mothers would, but this doesn't prove anything in my personal opinion. About a year after Jennifer went missing, a show called The Fifth Estate, which is a show about true crime investigative journalism that is usually quite well done, began investigating for their two-part documentary on the disappearance of Jennifer Hillier Penny. During these interviews, the Fifth Estate got into contact with friends and family of Jennifer, and most notably, they actually got an interview with Dean Penny. When news of their investigations got out, the RCMP and Dean's lawyer went to the Newfoundland Supreme Court and appealed for a publication ban on information pertaining to the case. This ban was granted, and the Fifth Estate's episode was stopped. But... Recently, some information on what they found in their research has come forward. There were a few notable things received in these interviews that I will tell you about now. When speaking to Jennifer's friend Vicki Burton, she told the interviewer that Jennifer had told her that Dean said he would make away with her and that no one would ever find her. This statement was incredibly concerning. Other friends stated that they thought it was odd that Dean had forgotten duck decoys when he was an experienced duck hunter and knew that he needed them to properly hunt. Also a bit off track, but worth noting, duck hunting in the way he was doing it is done out on a boat on the ocean. And the morning after Jennifer disappeared, Dean was out on his boat hunting. But the water was far from ideal for any hunting. The final piece of evidence actually ties in with Dean coming home for his duck decoys. In their interview with Dean, they were told that he was at his home at 8pm on the 30th. That means that he had to have been there between 8 and around 11. That seems like an awful long time to retrieve duck decoys from a garage. Interestingly, investigators on the case actually cite Jennifer's suspected time of disappearance as 8pm which places Dean in the home when Jennifer disappeared, allegedly. Since this interview, Dean's lawyer has been very adamant that Dean releases no further statements and no longer takes interviews, so it seems unlikely that we will be receiving more information from him anytime soon. While Dina's thoughts on the case aren't well known, Marina has offered some very strong opinions on the case. At first, Marina figured that her mother had gone to live with a friend for a short time to get away from Dean. 
Marina knew that her mom wouldn't leave without anyone knowing, but if that one friend she was staying with knew, then that was a bit different. This became less and less likely as the case moved on, and Marina was well aware of this. Then, things began coming forward that were critical in shaping her thoughts on her mother's disappearance. The whole investigation was a roller coaster for Jennifer's family, and each day they felt more and more that the RCMP weren't doing all that they could to close the case. In August of 2016, a fisherman pulled up a rolled piece of some sort of discarded plastic. This information was relayed to Marina, but apparently it was so much more than just some piece of litter. The rolled up plastic was actually a discarded air mattress, and rolled up inside it were human remains. Next, Marina heard that the remains were identified as Jennifer's and that they were being brought to St. John's for further testing. Hopeful that this could be the break in the case that everyone had been looking for, Marina called the RCMP. She didn't get through, so she left a message inquiring about the fisherman's discovery. The RCMP didn't call back all of that day. They also didn't call back the next day. Then, finally, Marina was told what was going on by the fisherman who reeled in the plastic. The plastic found by the fisherman was indeed a rolled-up air mattress, but her mother wasn't found. In fact, no remains were found in the mattress at all. It was just a discarded mattress and nothing more. This rumor going from finding discarded trash to having and identifying a body frustrated Marina beyond belief. She felt that nothing would ever bring her mother home. But when Marina felt that way, she decided that she was going to try and do something about it. Marina started a Facebook group dedicated to finding her mother. Marina and other members of Jennifer's family held a bingo fundraiser to bring in a marine search and rescue vessel to St. Anthony in 2017. This fundraiser raised $22,500. The boat was brought in and started searching the area around Fishing Point, a national park in St. Anthony. But two days in, the weather got too bad and searches had to be called off. But there were other efforts being made to find Jennifer. A billboard was erected near the Tim Hortons. For those of you who don't know, Tim Hortons is the go-to coffee place in Canada, to the point where it's more like a religious icon than a coffee shop. Most places have three or four in each town, but St. Anthony only has one. So this is the most happening spot in town. It's very often that lines go all the way into the street and actually stretch quite a while into the street. Because of all this traffic, it is also an optimal spot for a missing person sign to go. Another went up in the popular Fishing Point National Park, a place that has 1,000 steps scaling a sheer cliff to a high-up look-off that has astounding views. My older brother actually sliced his leg open on a sharp rock at the lookout and we had to get him down the cliff to go to the hospital to get stitches and I have to say 1000 steep steps are far from ideal with a deep gash in your calf. But this place has many people passing through and that made it an ideal location for Jennifer's missing persons billboard, especially to show the case to tourists to broaden searches. Jennifer's family also made bumper stickers, they got stores to post Jennifer's face, and they made car magnets, all to raise awareness for her disappearance. Despite all of their efforts, there seemed to be little information coming from the case. Then, Marina found out about how Jennifer changed her life insurance policy prior to her disappearance, and this quickly made her distrust her father. 
There was already a rift in the family, but this made Marina highly suspicious of Dean. Marina later told Dean that if he ever wanted her to speak to him again, he had to take a polygraph test to prove that he did nothing. Dean refused to do so on advisement of his lawyer. This solidified how Marina felt about her mother's disappearance. Three years after Jennifer had vanished, Marina posted pictures of the signed and dated modified life insurance policy. She said that it was important evidence in the case and that she wasn't willing to wait for police to say anything anymore. Overall, Marina was displeased with the direction of the case. But she did say that the investigators did want the case to be solved now, and she can see the efforts that are being made in the case. Just recently, three affidavits from the RCMP by Constable Pittman have provided some information on what has been happening in the case. Recently, RCMP on the case went to the Newfoundland Supreme Court to request an extension of hold for items taken as evidence during the investigation. This extension was granted, and when the news that this extension happened got out to the public, it was huge. This not only meant that they have been continuing to work on the case, but that contrary to what we once knew, there was in fact evidence taken in the case despite previously stating that none could be found. In the first affidavit, Pittman said that one item of evidentiary value was taken from Dean and Jennifer's cabin in the Northwest Arm. The next said that multiple items had been seized from Dean's home. The final affidavit said that a few items were confiscated from a car that was searched after Jennifer's disappearance. The items that were confiscated have not been named to the public, but we do have some basic information on the status of the evidence. As of right now, 15 items have been sent to the Ottawa RCMP Forensics Crime Lab for analysis. A total of 100 exhibits of potential evidentiary value were taken from the three locations listed above. While only 15 items had been tested as of the release of these affidavits, all evidence is intended to be taken in for analysis. The forensics lab only accepts a certain number of evidence exhibits at a time, and once they are finished being analyzed, the next grouping can be submitted. Due to the slow process of waiting for results before submitting further exhibits, the RCMP needed to request an extension to hold on to the items citing their evidentiary value and as I previously stated, this hold was granted. While these items are important in the case, Pittman said that they are more probative than directly incriminating. Basically, what he said this means is that these items are more valuable in corroborating statements than directly pinning something on someone. While these pieces of evidence could be critical in tying off investigative loose ends, the RCMP needs people to come forward with information if they are to ever truly solve this case. They strongly believe that people in the town of St. Anthony have information on the case, but due to its close-knit community, they are reluctant to come forward. As of right now, there have been no suspects named in the investigation, and investigators refuse to comment on if they currently had a person of interest. Marina and Jennifer's other family members have organized two walks in her honor, both times passing by both Dean's home on Husky Drive and the RCMP office in St. Anthony. In August of 2019, Jennifer's father passed away, not knowing what happened to his daughter. Marina, who is now raising two children of her own, is haunted by what happened to her mother. She also said that Jennifer's disappearance plagued her grandfather, and in the end, it's what did him in, because his heart just couldn't handle it.
This was where the case is left off, but instead of me giving you some closing statements, I'd like to read you Marina's last post on the Find Jennifer Hillier Penny Facebook page, because it really tells you a lot about the toll of an unsolved missing persons case and the frustrations that follow such an event. On August 27th of 2020, at 1.14pm, Marina made this post. Hey folks, it's been a while. In between my breaks of inactivity on this page, I always come back with an apology for being distant. But after some personal growth, I realize I don't owe anyone an apology. There are very few people that would manage walking a day in my shoes, let alone the past four years and everything I've endured along the way. I've been living in survival mode for far too long, and these fight-or-flight responses are taking a toll on my overall health. I also had to put some distance between myself and the detectives handling my mom's case. For a while, I stopped answering their calls and they stopped calling. You see, this murder investigation is of the highest priority and they won't tell anyone anything that could possibly jeopardize their investigation, understandably. But I was sick of hearing the same thing over and over and over again. This is a high priority case, I wish I could tell you what we know. We are working on this diligently every day, someday the phone is going to ring and it's going to be the one you want to hear, and so on and so forth. So I decided I didn't want the phone to ring anymore, until it's the day that they have the one responsible arrested. Because that same old stuff I keep hearing every time is too damn disappointing. Let's be real, I'm sick of dealing with disappointment. This past week, I decided to do some big things in memory of my mom. I went soul-searching, it was an amazing experience, and my only regret is not doing it sooner. But upon doing all of that, I decided it was time to get back on track. I set up a meeting with the lead investigator on the case, and my uncle accompanied me. We were there for an hour. We had a good, good for lack of a better word, discussion. I feel better after leaving than before I went in, so it went well. Hope is something that I always need to re-establish after so much time passes. There's some things about reliving everything again in that hour or more that I was there that just doesn't sit right with me. It keeps me awake at night. It makes me physically ill. I can't wrap my brain around a lot of it. But it made me very worrisome for a small town such as St. Anthony and its townspeople to not only have a murderer lurking in your depths, but to be surrounded by so many morally corrupt scumbags. When the media released a statement from Major Crimes stating that there are people in the town who know things about Jennifer's murder and are not coming forward, your mind might go to the ones responsible, but that's not exactly who they're speaking of. I just can't help but feel, as a close-knit community, you'd have no trouble reporting a drunk driver or someone lurking around your shed with intent to steal a party next door getting out of hand that deserves the peace, or if someone assaulted you at a local bar. Hell, yous wouldn't be long reporting an out-of-province license plate for fear that those individuals didn't self-quarantine. There are people in the town of St. Anthony who are ignorantly withholding information, and I can't fucking understand why. In my opinion, you are an accessory to murder. Do you feel like what you know is insignificant because you can't prove anything? Newsflash, it's not your job to prove it. That's what the highly trained detectives on the case are for. But it is your job to be a decent human being and report what you think you may know. Or is it the fact that you just don't want to be involved? 
which I find even more disturbing, considering Crime Stoppers is completely anonymous. There are people in this town who think they know things, who might have heard things from others. People who have seen weird behavior or had weird conversations that didn't settle well with you either. I know you have no sweet clue how the dynamics of a murder investigation works, but every single thing counts. Any detail as insignificant as you might think it is could help a circumstantial case become airtight. You could be the piece of the puzzle the cops are waiting for. I'm not making this long post to beg and plead with you to come forward for my mother's sake or for my sake. We're past that point. You, whoever you are, clearly don't give a flying fuck about us. Four years into this tragedy and people are still afraid to speak out for whatever reason that does not have a good enough excuse to be withheld. I'm disgusted. The more I know, the more I start losing faith in humanity. But come forward for yourselves. I believe this is going to end. I believe the detective when he says it's coming soon. I was the one who could see the anger, compassion, and determination in his face. I could feel the truth in his words. I do know that soon might not be tomorrow or the next day. It might not even be five years time from now. But soon it will be. Soon enough that you won't be able to outlive it or run from it. And no money and lawyer will protect you. I can guarantee you all one thing. You don't want to be on the other side of the courtroom from me when this case gets blown wide open. Now say it a little fucking louder for the people in the back. Hashtag justice for Jennifer. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shali Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.